there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. I think I saw um, a mention of it on the Writing New South Wales site. And just uh, to hear from people who are also writers, because I'm a writer myself, and just uh, sort of be with like-minded people a little bit, I suppose. And, you know, uh, having women's voices and the uniqueness of women's voices, that's what I think stands out. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Feminist Writers' Festival, Sydney, 2018. Supported by Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales and produced by Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is Pitch Me. This is a recording from the Feminist Writers Festival 2018 Sydney. We'd like to acknowledge that the festival was held on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd also like to thank our partner, the UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. Enjoy the podcast and connect with us on social media or via the FWF website, feministwritersfestival.com. My name is Fung Ling Kong and I'm the chair of the Feminist Writers Festival. I'm very pleased to see so many of you here today for this session on pitching. Um, I think we, we can agree that there's been a tremendous boost in recent publishing, um, in, in recent published feminist writing, thanks to events such as Me Too and so on too. And today's your opportunity to meet the people who do the commissioning and who do the publishing. So I'm going to introduce them in turn in just a minute, but before I do that, can I just deal with a few housekeeping details? Can you please set your phones to silent as we are recording and live streaming this event? But um, feel free to join in the conversation. We are tweeting, Instagramming, Facebooking, Using the, fam- using the hashtag um, FWF18. Um, uh, at the end of um, an hour's panel discussion, we will open the, we will open the, um, the session to questions from all of you. There'll be mics that will be roving, so um, save your questions till then, unless you really have to jump in. Um, I think the panelists have said that they don't particularly mind if you just want to quickly shoot up your hand and ask a question, although we will have to run mics to you if that's the case. No mics, okay. Um, and now, I hope you join me in welcoming the speakers. Chairing our session today on the far right, on my right, your left, is Lex Hurst. Lex Hurst is the publisher at Social Purpose Publishing House Pantera Price. She has previously been a festival director, editor and arts programmer, and is always driven by a love of great writing and exciting ideas. Next to Lex is Candice Chung. Candice is a Sydney-based freelance journalist and editor. She writes about food and culture for Australian Gourmet Traveller, the Sydney Morning Herald, Time Out, and Bloomberg, among others. Candice is a former editor of Fairfax's Daily Live and now runs SBS's Emerging Writers Project, which supports the work of young Asian Australian writers. Next to Candice is Wendy Tui. Wendy Tui is a champion for women and women's issues and freely delivers her support with well-reasoned common sense arguments plus anecdotes and life stories in her column in the Herald Sun's weekend feature supplement. And That's actually a very old bio, sorry, whoever pulled that up. Yeah, I work oh, at um, right. Fairfax and I'm editing Daily Life. Okay. I, I'm sorry, that's my fault for not providing a bio. No, that's all right. You, there you go, Fairfax Daily Life. And next to Wendy is Lucy Watson. Lucy is the online editor at Archer Magazine. Her work focuses largely on LGBTIQ issues and has appeared in Junkie, The Brag, Same Same and New Matilda. She's also a PhD candidate and tutor at the University of Sydney and has managed to turn her fascination with celebrities into an academic project. So ask her about that. So please welcome our speakers and over to you, Lex. Thank you, everyone, for coming along today. Can you, can you hear me, everyone? This is such a beautiful room to be talking in. 
Um, I thought we'd just start with just finding out a little bit about um, who's in the room with us here because um, we have a whole lot of people from very different backgrounds and we can talk about so much when it comes to um, editing, writing, feminism and gender and we want to make sure we get a good mix of what is practical um, and interesting and go a bit th theoretical as well. Um, so maybe could you put up your hand if you're a writer yourself? And keep it up if it's if you're here because you'd like some tips about pitching to people generally and people here on the panel. Okay, great. Lots of writers. Um, do you want to put up your hand now if you're interested in editing as well? A couple of potential editors. Great. Um, whether you have a particular focus where you'd like to um, write for an online publication or versus a print one, is that sort of a no one really minds between those two? Yep, great. Okay, a few nods there. Um, put up your hand if you're particularly interested in writing about um, topics that pertain to gender, feminism, any of the topics that um, Feminist Writers Festival really talks about. Great. That should be obvious, but it's good to check. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming along, and we'll make sure that we get quite practical in that case because we have um, a lot of excellent experience on this panel here. Um, so we'll try and talk from a lot of different points of views. Um, absolutely, if you have a question that comes up and it, you are worried that um, you might lose it, chuck your hand up in the middle and we'll go to you. Otherwise, we are going to leave a solid half an hour at the end of um, the session for Q&A. Um, so if it's something that you feel like you'd like a longer response on, then maybe hold on until then and, um, and we'll try to answer it in depth. Um, and I guess thinking about framing those questions in ways so that they'll be helpful for more than one person in the audience is probably a good way to think about it as well. Um, so I thought I might throw to you guys first and, um, and just sort of with a bit of a general question when it comes to how much you actually think about um, gender, feminism, your job as a feminist um, in your day-to-day -day role. Um, I know that um, my experience with people in the media and then in book publishing, which is, um, you know, my own background, is that um, people tend to be quite aware of their responsibility um, as gatekeepers and as people who, you know, have some sort of control over the culture that we speak about and the way that we speak about it today. And I'd just like maybe a, a general reflection about whether you consider that a responsibility and, and whether that affects your day-to-day -day work. So why don't we start with you, Candice, and we'll work yeah, across. Sure. Um, thanks, everyone, for having us. It's really nice to be in this lovely lecture room. Um, I guess, um, Lex, I do think about gender and feminism, and it's something that is more... Uh, you know, a thing that informs the way I commission, that's a back-of-mind thing um, always ticking over, rather than, you know, something that I might explicitly be commissioning all the time. So I work for SBS, um, and the project that I work on is about encouraging more um, young um, Asian-Australian voices to come forth. So when we talk about feminism there, it might be more about intersectionality, for example, or, you know, um, why is it important to consider race and feminism at the same time? And each piece may not directly address feminism itself, but it comes from a feminist perspective in my mind. So I don't know if that kind of answers the question. Um, I'm encouraged by the fact that I feel that feminism and gender is more in our cultural water supply um, so you know whether or not you want to commission a feminist story you're aware of the fact that people are interested so yeah what, what do you think I, I, I imagine Wendy as well you everyone. might want to you might want to talk to um, your experience now and even maybe compare that with some of the other places you've worked so I've only been doing um, the job Candace used to do for uh, seven weeks. And um, so it's been a steep learning curve. And yeah, I mean, morning, noon and night, I'm trying to get women's perspectives and stories and issues out as the daily life editor. Of course, I'm editing the whole of lifestyle. So I've got to do stuff that, I mean, if anyone's got any good ideas about beauty, let me know, because like, I am clueless. That is a huge um, job too. Yeah, it's, <laughs> red lipstick is good, there you go. That's, <laughs> My beauty covered for the rest of my working life. Um, yeah, so I, I did um, two lots of 
big chunks of time at Fairfax from the age of 18 and and then I had a break when I had a third kid from everything and ended up at News Limited as a maternity leave arts editor because I'd done some arts freelancing and someone saw my byline. And so that was supposed to be for four months and I've just left this year after ten years and um, it was, yeah, the steepest roller coaster ride you could imagine because I was from a different working culture and... I'm from, I guess, a different perspective than you necessarily might expect to see on a news-limited platform, um, although there's a very diverse set of views inside, the, you know, among people who work there. And, um, yes, at, in my previous role, I kind of very was lucky, lucky to be able to kind of panel my opinion writing into a lot about feminism, a lot about uh, women's safety, a lot about equality and a lot about basic women rights like a roof over your head when you're 60. Um, Mm. And yes, I felt a high level of responsibility and and was always thinking about if not me, who? If if I don't write this, who will write this on my platform here? And I, I do worry about that still um, and I take it incredibly seriously and, mm. and, and let's face it, personally. Um, so it was a privilege and, and often a challenge. And do you remember when that responsibility kicked in for you? Was it something you'd always been aware of as a journalist? I, I mean, it, it, I'm from the old school where, where there's a whole line of people willing to um, tell you off if you lean too much into subjective territory or... Uh, etc and you have to become objective so in my working life you have to be objective allegedly I mean you know we're all objectivity is really a myth because Mm. everyone's coming from their own background but um, so during my working life though we've gone from if you write an adjective you'll get a kick in the butt to oh you know use your voice be yourself put yourself in articles and all of that it's been amazing to see that that happen and um, the sense of responsibility just kicks in when you become a mature adult and you go, oh, my God, I have a platform. How can I use this platform so that when I'm on my deathbed, I'll be quite happy with the way I used it? Mm. And that's really what drives me altogether. I think these, com- these big companies, um, they've got two imperatives, um, you know, obviously make money enough to keep the company going but also serve their audience and I, I just want to make sure my share of it was served as well as I absolutely could and it's a very – it's a big responsibility and at the same time as anyone here who writes anything feminist would know – there is um, there's a bit of emotional wear and tear with, um, you know, being in a public space and being a female and, and, and saying things that some some of the more hardcore male readers don't like. Mm. So it's yeah, I'm I'm glad that I came to this in middle age and not as, as a younger and more vulnerable woman. And I think that's the challenge for everyone, young and writing about feminism and and, and equality. Uh, that um, there are a lot of people who would like you not to be doing it. Mm. I don't think we could have a panel that talks about being a feminist writer or editor probably without the idea of trolling coming up. So maybe we should jump to that quickly while it's here. Is that something that the two of you have experienced as well? Uh, I think I have been lucky in that um, when I worked at Daily Life, which would have been the more high-speed, more opinionated um, news outlet... We were, in a way, very much known via our columnists. So our signature columnists, like Clem Ford, would be the person who's taking the heat, like, from social media. And it's something that she actually writes about in columns for us. So um, as an editor, I feel like, um, you know, the the amount of heat that we... um, we cop or we take like is actually um you know not as um not as severe or like we don't have to spend as much emotional energy um emotional labor dealing with that social media backlash but having said that as an editor um I I feel like it's also my responsibility to try and, um, you know, make sure stories that go out there that um, my writers are getting the support from us, you know, and that, you know, they are also given a platform to address those trolling situations, for example. Um, And as for me personally, um, I feel like 
um, I am a fairly introverted person on social media and that has been my choice. And I think part of the thing also is I feel like I need to spend most of my energy doing my work. And a lot of people um, naturally are good at doing social media things and spending energy in, um, you know, addressing trolling or like, you know, and, and stuff like that. Whereas I feel like I actually would have to pour myself into dealing with that. And the limited amount of energy that I have has to go into productive work as a freelancer, you know, for example. Absolutely. I save my Instagram for nice pictures of waterfalls and beaches for that reason as well. It's an area. Lucy, you'd be aware, um, because you're working with people at Archer who are telling very personal stories mm. and also often telling stories that aren't told in the mainstream, do you have a sense of your responsibility to your writers and how you set them up to experience telling these stories widely? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think one of the things that I really like um, about my role is that um, as a queer woman, I'm still like the most privileged one in the room. <laughs> um, as the white sister and the sort of middle class educated person, um, I get to do the behind the scenes grunt work of bringing up the voices of lesser heard people um, and people that have never written before and showing them how to write and taking them through that process and doing all this sort of um, behind the scenes kind of stuff. I was thinking about it just before we were talking about um, seeing sort of gender in your role and we, it's like a sort of little side story, but we were doing a campaign for um, staying negative in, with the Victorian AIDS Council and um, they needed us to recruit men who have sex with men to be part of that campaign. And I was like, where do I find these men? <laughs> um, and my boss was like, oh, just go back through all of our writers and see if you can find any of our writers that would be interested in doing that. And I've been at the Archer for three and a half years and I went back through every piece of content that I've published and I found three men. <laughs> um, there's just none of them. <laughs> Uh, because if you want to talk about gender and sexuality, it's often women, uh, particularly in, in the Archer space. But So it's, it's nice to be that person that's doing the grunt work, that person that's in the privileged position to do that grunt work, to bring everyone through. And they are, they're telling deeply personal stories. Um, we're very fortunate in that we have a very supportive audience. It's very rare that we have um, awful trolls. Uh, and it's just my policy to just delete them because I just my my authors don't need to see that they don't need to be told about that. So, um, but often we just have people being like, "That's great, like good on you." And it's, it's really lovely. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. Um, what about in your experience, Wendy? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I I, I uh, became an opinion writer from just being a straight journalist because I was asked to by a male editor who said, we really don't have many female voices here. Do you want to have a crack at it? Mm. And um, so I was like, yeah, sure, no drama. Yeah, I'll have a go at that. And so and you didn't, at that time, I, you weren't I thinking no about idea. what would come from I mean, it? I mean, you know, at the age, you would get a letter saying, oh, you know, you spelt the street name wrong or something and, <laughs> you know, that would be really harsh. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, News Limited trolls, they're a very dedicated bunch, you know. They've... <laughs> They've got the skills and they will stop at nothing to make you feel like a crap person, a crap woman, a crap mother, a crap partner, you know, a crap anything, you know, like everything, everything. They want you to feel intersectionally crap and, um, you know, on every area of your life you're a fail and, and you know, if, if, and every woman I know thinks that too. That's what a lot of the guys oh, wow. would say. Oh, yes. Every woman I know hates everything you write. I'm like, how hard have you twisted their arm behind their back or are you just speaking for them anyway? You know. Yeah, well, it's all... Yeah. That, that that's what you wonder. The minute you see every woman I know thinks, you go, oh, yeah, that sounds like my granddad. Yeah, I think that's why I'm a feminist, actually. No, but, it's one um, woman. Yeah, no, yeah. Th look, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm old. I've been through plenty of life experiences, but I was shocked to see my, and feel my heart rate going up and starting to sweat some of the stuff that's written. One guy, particularly in the end, I thought, I'm going to find out who you are, mm. Renee. And uh, I won't say his surname because I actually found out his real surname, tracked him down. Of course, he's had the divorce where he's been treated really badly by the family mm. court and it's all her fault. And mm. You should be reading the following 20 articles on, on, you know, academic studies on maternal alienation, you know, and I'm a victim. And, um, and that's why I'm be I want you to be feeling absolutely dreadful about yourself all day and all night. You know, some of them really 
work very hard to get under your skin. They're very personal. By the end of that, so that was at the beginning where my heart rate would go up, I'd get upset, you know, because I had to moderate my own blog. I had a blog on a news limited platform for six years that I, I moderated. So you see everything. And the ones who hate you the most go, this isn't for publication. So you can't even share it and show yeah. what you're, you're up against. Um, so then you get them blocked by security and, and then they would come back under a different handle, you know. It, some people really have no life um, and they would like to take a chip off your own joy. So, but by the end of it, the good news is I was like, okay, bring it, bitches. You, you know, <laughs> give me your best stuff because I don't give a shit. You know, I, by the end of it, I'd been so... I hit the bottom and I was down and I rang Clementine more than once to go, how do you cope with this? Could you give me some hints? I know we work for, you know, a competition, but, you know, we're all sisters. How, how do you deal with this stuff? And she was helpful. Mm. I spoke to other women. And can you share any of those tips that actually helped? Um, you know, people just say to you, don't read it, you know. Um, really, really, the only thing that helps is... Realise, yes, I can actually. The, the one tip that helped me the most, it's a four-word tip. Actually, I oh know, three, I can't count either. I'm that bad of a person. Three is even better. Yeah, um, consider the source. So once I started not just considering the words, in fact, putting the words over here and thinking, who are you? What's your, you know, what, what is the meaning of what you're trying to do here? And look at it almost academically and with a bit of detachment. And you almost can, by the end, once... Because often if someone takes a set against you and they don't like you, they'll just keep coming back and back. So you actually can really virtually profile them, you know. Mm. And then you have the power. Mm. So you can take the power back by considering the source. I'll never forget when that awful um, pickup guy, that Rush Validize, you know, mm. Rush V or whatever his name was, who was coming to Australia and he was going to run those talks on, you know, mm. sexually assaulting young women... When he was found in his literally coming blinking out of his mother's basement in his underpants, you know, someone opened, knocked on the door of his mum's house. They found him wherever he was and he literally came up out of the basement in his undies. I thought, well, that's, 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 who, that's, who, that's the source. You really <laughs> Made are you feel better about basement. all of that. Yeah. Yeah. But there are vulnerable women who I bloody would worry about, absolutely, yeah. like Candace said, and, and there's some really nasty guys, but it just fires you up more. In the end, I would snap it up metaphorically and use it as fuel. Mm. But that took a lot of time. Sorry to talk so long. No, it's all really interesting. Um, and then have you taken any of the learnings from that experience to now that you're editing other people that you pass on? Oh, yeah. I just get in behind anyone and everyone. I, I just get in behind them and I go, you know, they're going to have to get through me first. Mm. And they've made me pretty tough. So. Yeah, now Good you can turn them. that around, yeah. yeah. Um, Lucy, I'm interested in the fact that you said that um, it's more women who are coming forward with these stories, um, these personal stories, and you're nodding along as well, Candice, because, I mean, traditionally we've been told that we need to work harder to find stories by women. Do you think that it's the time we're in at the moment? Um, what, do you, what do you think it is that's making people, women particularly, share stories? I think I, th I think there's a huge trend towards sort of personal stories within um, a lot of a lot of the media, and particularly in a lot of niche media like the media that I work in. Um, and I think that is entirely propped up through a feminist framework, right? And if you're going, the personal is political, um, you know, in the 1970s to now, where I'm just like, let's tell thousands and thousands of stories about about bisexuality because the more we hear about it, the less it's going to be erased. Mm. Um, and so it's just because it's through this feminist framework, it's women that know how to do that or that are sort of inherently more connected to that, um, that sort of are inherently more open to sharing personal stories because it's kind of been the catch cry for sort of 50 years. Mm. And then has that been your experience as well, Candice? How do you go about finding people for this project you're working on at the moment? Are you reaching out to them or are you waiting for them to come to you? Yeah, um, to start with that, I do a bit of both. Um, so I, the project that I'm working on, I have the luxury of having a little bit more time than, say, um, a publication or a site like Wendy's where you're a daily site and you really need to respond to the news cycle, churn out five features a day, brand new. I have more of a lead time, so I get a bit more room to um, reach out to people whose writing may maybe I've read and felt, oh, okay, you know, you're so interesting. Um, I'd like to hear more from you. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I get to do that because of the time. Yeah. Um, How long, just from interest, from beginning to end, from you sort of reaching out to someone, are you usually publi- publishing the piece? Yep, so it could take any time from one week to, um, you know, a month, um, depending on what that story idea is. Sometimes when it's deeply personal, like we were saying before with Lucy's um, uh, uh, writers, you want to kind of workshop with that um, writer a little bit, especially when they're younger or if they're a beginning writer. Um, That is also something I consider a luxury as well because it means I don't have to be just accepting pitches that are 90% right Mm. or 95% right, which when you're doing that, it makes my job a lot easier. But what happens is you're getting a smaller and smaller pool of contributors like when the time pressure is on, you go to the people you know who will deliver. Yep. And so um, in a sense, when, um, I, when you know, SBS is good enough to give me an opportunity to do something like this, um, it means we're able to then expand the pool yeah. of writers. A and do bit. you see that as an important responsibility? Is Very that? much so. Because, um, and partly it's because, you know, having worked on daily life, I felt I never really got the opportunity to do this as much as I would have liked. It was very much, I read a pitch, it was suitable, I'll take it. If not, I say, I'm so sorry, but it's not quite right. Mm-hmm. Quite often, not even having the time to give like a, you know, um, a substantial feedback to let you know why, um, you know, I, I couldn't take it on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel in a way like this project gives me the chance to do some of the stuff that I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but haven't had the chance to. Um, as to the female ratio, I think it's so interesting. I for, for SBS and what I'm working on, even though it's not an overtly, um, you know, gender-related um, project, it's also mostly women that I've been um, getting um, pictures from. So it could be from the culture of um, uh, personal writing where, you know, women feel more uh, at ease or they've had the hunger to want to you know, express themselves but hadn't had the opportunity to and now feel more empowered to. But also probably about patriarchy, like, because men aren't so, um, you know, uh, comfortable uh, being vulnerable, mm. you know? It's the other side to the coin, The other it? side to the coin, yeah. like, possibly, I don't know. And so then if you look at it from that point of view, like, would you look at that as your responsibility then to hunt down some more male voices that can and force them to be vulnerable? Uh, I don't know if it's possible to force. <laughs> but I do try to, um, to look out for male voices. Um, and how I've done that recently is I've reached out to um, Adolfo from um, Archer, who um, I hoped like, might have more um, you know, queer male contact or male contacts in general. A lot of the time, for some reason, you know, you're a woman, you're getting women pitching to you for some reason I don't know why um so that's what I've been trying to do um yeah Wendy have you had the same experience at the different publications you've worked for so I imagine at Daily Life it's a primarily female writers guess what this stunned me it's a 50% male readership oh wow yeah readership yeah I was amazed and and what about contributors Oh, quite a few do, uh, do off now. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether anyone knows Casey Edwards. She's a very good writer. Who I, I love her work. And um, her partner is Chris. He's a um, journalism academic. And I've got him writing a lot about new fathering, fathering where you are vulnerable, fathering where you do uh, confess to having emotions even while testicles are also present. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and, and two other guys I can think of, yep. Um, yeah, one, one is heterosexual, one's not heterosexual. I, I, I think we need to... I, I don't know why I'm looking at you. Like, I, I think we need to represent much more non-straight um, writing and non-white writing. I mean, I, I've been there seven weeks. I just haven't had pictures from many non-white women and I'm really actively now madly hard trying to find uh, women 
who can represent the and not just to write about cold women from you know culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds issues just to write just to be represented mm. to have a voice so as yeah. Candace said one thing I have found is hard is that you want to support new writers and you want to bring new writers on which I desperately do as well but then you do end up with a lot of pressure on you and I'm willing to bear a certain amount of it and I have to s- sort of sit with them either virtually or you know, sometimes in person and, and work on the writing. Yeah. Because if you're really going to put your money where your mouth is on bringing up new writers, you've got to make yourself accessible to them. And when you have got to put four or five pieces up a day, which you would remember that, you are being hunted by saber-toothed tigers all day. And where are you looking for new writers when you uh, are searching? Everywhere. I, I mean, everywhere. So I just will have recruited the people I've met today in the foyer, <laughs> like, yeah. um, you know, another woman, Armani, and, and you know, I need, need you writing. She's got a PhD on, but won't last forever. Um, and Candace got a number already, you know, like, I, I... A lot of people do come to you. I found some people on Twitter. Um, I've seen p- stuff go past on Facebook because I'm, I'm in a number of groups on Facebook um, and I, I've, like we all are, and... I just look out all the time. I mean, as I say, I'm very new in the job, but I'm I'm all about using this platform, just like I hope I could use the last one, to forward women, further women's women thriving in the world. And and you know, that I'm a mentor with Women in Media Victoria, and I have two mentees. I just one of my wonderful mentees is the deputy editor of Big Issue in Melbourne. She just had her first piece published on Daily Life, and it was a very, very good piece. I'm, like, so happy for her. She, mm. She's it's a lovely piece, and it's another one coming. But I've got my eyes open all the time. Yeah. There's an interesting thing where the more indie publications, I think, are often doing the work of trying to build um, these writers up, and then, of course... Um, people from bigger publications, and myself included, are always looking at, like, I definitely looked at Archer and I've, I've been looking at quite a few pe- of the people that you work with as well at SBS um, to then, like, take those writers ourselves. Is there a frustration when you work for an indie publication that you are doing all of this work or do you just see it as a, a part of your editorial role? Um, uh, yeah, I really like that. I really love it. Um, I had a writer a couple of years ago who... It was quite interesting because the piece was... Difficult, Like, we were sort of pulling teeth trying to get it together because there was just... And, and, you know, I'm always about, like, every every time I do an edit, I don't, I don't um, change their words. I get them to do that because it's such a personal story. So I'll be like, tell me more about, like, this thing. How did it feel? How did it look? And then they'd sort of reply with, like, a whole bunch of cliches. I'm like, but how did it actually feel? You know, not just the cliche. And sort of really, like, we went through maybe three or four, maybe even five drafts. It's really, really difficult, um, and then got it out there. And uh, so uh, I should caveat that as well. I'm a volunteer, um, so these pieces can take. Uh, yeah, if I'm feeling motivated, a week, uh, sometimes three, four, five months um, from them pitching to us finally getting it out, because it'll take me two to three weeks to look at it and get a draft to them. It'll take them two to three weeks to look at it and get a draft back. Like, we're really slow, but that's... It's lovely because it means that people are sort of putting their time into it. But, yeah, but this, with, with this particular writer, I now see them writing for everything um, and, had an, and had an editing gig somewhere and I was just like, I got you there. <laughs> it wasn't really all me, but it was part of me. <laughs> I feel exactly the same. I always feel so happy and so proud when, you know, someone I've worked with um, as a writer, especially as a new writer, um, is now out there and doing lots of things and, you know, whose talent is being recognised. Because funnily, um, quite often it's not that this person's writing has gotten a lot better after you've edited them. It's that they already have this level of talent, but um, not kind of the exposure, right? Um, And you're helping shape this story, um, helping hopefully uh, bring their voice out even more. So it's like deepening that person's voice, like you said. Um, And it's some, uh, hopefully the story is, the language also is something that they feel they identify with. And not just like something that you're putting into their mouth, that you feel like, oh, that, you know, that's a nice turn of phrase. It's like, no, the other person needs to feel that um, they're proud of this piece of writing. Then they can then 
promote it and stand 100% behind it. Um, so, yeah, if they get picked up, I think it's great because then it means, like, you know, more of this writer's friends might consider writing for me, like, later. And then the pool just keeps growing. And, you know, um, at the end of each piece that we publish for the Emerging Writers Project, there's always a tagline to say who this new writer is, how to find them. And then, like, you know, if you want to write for this series, um, DM me. So, yeah, guys, DM me. Um, yeah, and so I think, so, you know... Where writers come from, sometimes it does come from a story that's already been published um, or it comes from, you know, oh, I also ask writers to recommend their friends to me. So, like, you know, if they know someone who's interested in writing, you've, if you've had an experience that you feel, um, you know, was was good and you were able to um, write an essay that that you felt, you know, express what you wanted to express and you wanted to share that feeling with your friend and they seem to be right, then, yeah, do it. Sometimes word of mouth really works that way as well. Yeah. I am interested because so working on books is such a different thing to online because we're often, I'm often working with somebody for two years before the finished product is going out there. And I mean, if it's a non-fiction project, so starting at a similar place often to, I imagine, these pitches from an idea germination, sometimes it's, sometimes it's a year before we would even sign it on as a publishing house because it's going through all of this thinking process. Um, I'm... I hear all these different things about, like, that's obviously such a different end to it to when you're doing a piece that, you know, is responsive to the news and has to be up immediately. And, and perhaps you guys both probably in your daily life would have experience with um, what that's like editorially, firstly, working with someone like that. And, um, and I wanted to clear up as well, because I've, I've had people come across and, and be edited and ask. Um, I heard that there is, with many publications, a right for them to change 10% of the article without checking with the writer before it goes up. Is that a myth that I have heard, or is it just... Yeah. I've never had heard a figure put on it. The only thing that can limit your uh, ability to get back with, with lots of changes is, um, or any... Is, it's time. Um, but I would always just quickly copy and paste and say, look, could you just read through this? I've had to get it legaled. I've had to pull out da-da-da-da references to your ex-husband, whatever it is, which I've, I've done. Because people don't realise that actually, like, this is a reason few, less people are coming out in Australia with Me Too. Our defamation rules, our defamation law is very tight indeed. Yeah. So sometimes it's been to a lawyer. I've got 20 minutes left before I need to get it up for for an edition um, because now the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age have four editions a day online. So there's one at six, one at nine, one at 12, one at four, uh, and then there's an 8pm to update. And so we have to get our pieces prepared by those times as if they were going to press at that time. So the only thing that really limits you is time. Um, if it's going to need a dramatic rewrite, I would hold it and put something else in. Um, I've not heard of that 10% rule, but I like that there's a number attached to it that makes it sound like it might be a thing. Um, no, no, but it, it, I think it's really interesting. I think it's really interesting um, because uh, uh, a lot of the stories that we ed edit probably like are all first-person or opinion pieces. So it makes it really tricky to um, do a lot of change and then still have a byline over it. Because um, uh, I guess as an opinion writer, you want to be... You're essentially saying, oh, I'm owning this opinion, right? So if an editor's interfered and they have not kind of like, you know, shown that it's an editor's interference, in a way you're putting your writer out there like in a situation where they didn't ask to be in, um, if, the, if any meanings have been changed. So I would be very careful about um, changing anything without asking someone to run their eye over it. Um, time constraints definitely um, play a part. Um, you know, hopefully uh, when you're doing that editing process, quite often, like, writers are conscious, like, of, you know, our deadline constraints. Um, and then, you know, like, if if they're already um, corresponding with you, chances are, you know, we might get a chance to shoot them a quick email and say, hey, can you cast your eye over it? 
that way it's good for them, it's good for us, and you know. I tend to use also the same subbing that, that is used on if you're on staff. And so if I'm on staff and I've, I've sent an opinion piece in for tomorrow's paper and they need to cut two paragraphs cleanly out of it for length, I wouldn't be consulted and I wouldn't care. You hate it most when they cut from the bottom and you've got a beautiful ending that ties into the top. That is insulting. And you um, expect them to come back and check um, Well, you sort of hope that wouldn't happen now. But see, now a lot of subbing doesn't exist anymore and, and, and you know, it's done by people somewhere. Um, you know, you can't just wander over like you used to be able to. So, but I, I'd never change anybody's opinion. But I would, I would probably cut something cleanly, a clean piece. Yeah. Let them know if I possibly could. But I, I definitely treat people with exactly the same, you know, respect and and um, care um, as if I was touching my own work and also how my work would be handled by our desks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I think you have to treat pe- people's writing as a little piece of their soul. Um, I think we should talk, before we move forward, onto a more practical sort of pitching section. We wanted to talk a bit about um, working for free or working as a volunteer or working for not very much money and then also paying writers and how much we're able to pay writers for their work as well, which I think is, you know, maybe particularly another angle of the fact that we have women coming forward as well and so we're often talking about not paying women very much for their stories. Um, Yeah, so Archer, I believe, does pay all of their writers and you also now are on a wage of a sort, Lucy? Yeah, so um, when I started out, I was uh, a volunteer. I still am a volunteer. I was a volunteer um, and I was unpaid for probably two years Um, And then in the last sort of year, I've um, started to get a sort of honorarium. So it's, um, I'm still a volunteer, uh, but I get recognition for my volunteer duties, which is also kind of nice because it's tax-free if it's an honorarium. (laughs) Um, So I get a little bit of money now, which was sort of born out of a grant, actually. Um, My my boss is a gun at writing grants, so she wrote another grant and and we got some money to pay me. Um, So that's been nice. Uh, but it's still not corresponding to sort of any kind of hourly rate. Um, and, yeah, we've always paid our writers, but never enough. Um, I pay writers online $25 for their pieces, um, and we pay the magazine writers 150 for theirs. Um, so the spe- especially the $25 fee, it's really just like a – we're acknowledging that um, paying writers is really important, but we don't have any money. We're a volunteer-run publication. Um, so absolutely, sometimes I'll get people who come back and be like, no, I can't write for that. And I'm like, good. <laughs> you do that. Like, you, you, are, you know what you're worth, and that's not it. Um, I work for Archer for minimal pay because I really believe in it um, and because I think that if I wasn't there, it wouldn't be... like the cogs wouldn't be turning it wouldn't exist Um, and I think it's a really important platform and I'm really happy to sort of do that grunt work to bring up lesser heard voices because I'm in a position where I can Um, if I was in a position where I wasn't getting paid by the university to do a PhD (laughs) um, and procrastinating all the time um, maybe I would be in less of a position to actually give my time to that but we we do have like most of the staff are full-time workers that find time outside of their full-time work to volunteer for Archer because we believe in it. But I don't think you should write for free if it's a publication that has decent amounts of money. Um, Candice, you mentioned earlier that you didn't immediately go into writing and part of that was for financial reasons and that when you did go into editing, you chose um, journalism as a path as, rather than the creative writing path. And I think that a conversation that we have a lot um, within the the traditional publishing houses is that um, going into editing and writing is an unstable career. Um, it's also a lowly paid career for a very long time as well, um, and that's certainly true in traditional book publishing. Um, and editors are paid a base wage for a very long time until they become a publisher. Um, and there's, there's interesting things to say, I think, about the distinction between those two and how editing was seen more as a trade and then publishing is, as much more of a professional job and, and then um, more women edit and, and more men publish. Um, I'm, I'm interested in what you think because you're, you're seeing people and you're actively trying to bring people from more diverse backgrounds into writing and whether you see the challenges of, you know, trying to ask people to write for small amounts of money and to take on this insta- unstable sort of career, and, and is that a challenge that you're sort of heading into? 
Um, look, I think money is a consideration. It's a very valid one. Uh, you should never feel too shy about bringing it up. But probably not in on the first line of the email. But <laughs> you'll feel that it's a night is a good time to talk about. And within two emails, um, you know, an amount of money should come up. If it hadn't been mentioned, feel free to bring it up. Like you know, it's 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 a deal. Like you know, you're giving something, they're receiving something. You should feel validated that your labor is worth something. Um, Interestingly, I feel like a lot of us sitting here would have done some free labour. And um, uh, I certainly have. I've interned um, for a lot of places. Um, one of the first places that I interned for was a publication that I absolutely loved. Um, it's an indie publication called Yen Magazine. I don't know if you guys have read it. But um, I worked there for free, like as an intern for like a year-ish, you know, on top of stuff that I was, you know, like I, I was I was working stuff that paid rent, so that was fine. But um, when I look back, I feel like, okay, it's not just because I was beginning um, my career, it's also because, you know, you want to like maybe get exposure to um, a way of publishing, like or your you're asking, you want to actually, you want to ask yourself what you're getting out of this free labor situation so that it's not just about, you know, whether you deserve to be paid, but okay, well, for this free labor or, you know, non-monetary labor, what am I getting back in return? Am I absorbing the kind of experience that I'm then going to use, um, to make money in my next project, are people now recognizing my name with a certain kind of writing because I've done a couple of stories that now have like links that I can share in my next pitch? Because quite often that's really handy when you're pitching to an editor to include a couple of hyperlinks to stuff you've already published. Now, without those few free stories that you've done, perhaps it would be harder. So there's one thing, like you're interrogating what the, like, you know, whether there's a benefit of some sort with that free labour. Um, but also, having said that, it's, you know, you, it, you have agency as a writer whether or not you want to do this. Because I feel if the content that you're pitching is right, there will be someone who would be willing to pay for it. Um, you may have to look harder. It may have to be a project where they do have the liberty, like, you know, it, in a project like mine or, uh, like, that Lucy is working on, where the lead time is a little bit longer, where we're not having people breathing down our necks going, hey, are you going to deliver a piece tomorrow? In which case, it's much harder to take a chance on a newer writer. So, um, yeah, that's my experience. I don't... Um, I... I I'm actually really anti women writing for free because I, I think it, I don't think it's fair and I, I can totally accept all your points but I encourage everyone always not to write for free. But then we are in the luxury position of being able to pay. I mean, I have a set budget and it's not huge but I pay. The only time I take free stuff is if it is a book extract and we're giving the book a huge puff mm. and so obviously we wouldn't pay then. Well, we, we, you know, if we're asked to and it's something amazing, but I don't know, some celebrity book was sold to me recently as an extract and, and not only did they offer it, they then said, but of course it's going to cost you. Yeah. I swear, are you kidding me? I can support so many more writers. I think it was, I don't know, some rock singer. Anyway, um, no, I, I think you should fight to get paid and I'm absolutely fine with conversations about money. Um, our ad hoc rate is is pretty high compared to yours, but that's because you know we're a big. It's a big organisation. It's three hundred dollars, um, and I pay more for stuff that involves journalism. You know, interviews, time, labour, actual labour. Someone someone might have spent three days on that. You know, so that's a hundred dollars a day. It's still pretty bad, but I mean, yeah. So I'm I feel political about women doing things for free. I think there's a lot of exploitation. I think women are trained often to please. Well, you know, brought up I was definitely to please and not to make waves and I want them to please less and make more waves and, and feel like they deserve money. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. But that said, it's hard to break in, like you say, so maybe you have to. I don't know. Well, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% um, believe also that, you know, writers, whether or not you're a woman or a man, deserve to get paid. Uh, and, you know, your right to ask for it is absolute. Like, you should be able to do that. Um, I think it, this is interesting because it brings up a question of privilege. Uh, you know, those who are able to say, hey, absolutely, like, you know, no free writing for me, um, does that mean they're in more of a bargaining position to, to um, you know, get, get access to an editor or, like, a publisher who would take a chance on them? Because quite often it is hard to start out, um, which is not to say it's impossible, but um, it is hard. And for someone who maybe come from uh, a background where they weren't a writer to start, they might think, oh, like, you know, um, it, like, I feel that um, it might be harder for someone who doesn't feel that um, writing is their calling to pitch to you, like, or, like, to say, hey, can you, like, pay me and, like, you know, um, I'm going to pitch this idea to you right now, which is why sometimes it takes some seeking out, like, you know, yeah. for some, like, uh, yeah, like, emerging voices. Um, and never do um, a story um, for free just because someone says, hey, it'll build your profile. No. Like, no, that's, um, I think, you know, all of us probably have our BS detector on pretty high for that kind of thing. You want to ask, as I said earlier, like whether it's something that you can then use um, for something that will end up like being um, positive for your publishing career or your writing career. I'm just mildly concerned that we're running out of time and I want to, I want to, just hand over whatever information I can that's useful to yeah. people. Yeah. Maybe we can just start with just running through quickly um, what really stands out to you when somebody pitches at you and, and um, what you're really looking for um, generally in a pitch. Okay, so it's the most overused word in the world right now, um, authenticity. So um, you're right, Candace. Everything you say is right about needing to develop your, your voice and maybe you do have to work for free sometimes. That's probably another whole three-hour conversation. Mm. Yeah, But... Um, I look for someone being their real selves. So daily life and a lot of the platforms in this area use several formulae. One being first person um, used to be called confessional. Um, that that look this happened to me, and from this um, I've taken X Y Z, and here's a theme in society which my story plays into. Here's a couple of reasons it's current right now. And I'm wrapping that up in my own story. So a lot of that happens. And um, someone being themselves is all you want, a, a relatable voice. Is it better if it's in responsive? That, in that genre. Is it better if it's responsive to something that's happening right this yes. moment? Okay, so then there's also the newsy-linked stuff. So I would say to anyone wanting to start out in this field, you know, look, I am 30 years into this and I make cuttings I make cuttings from the papers, you know, or go to a cafe and photograph a story that you get an idea from mm -hmm. if you don't want to, you know, spend money. Um, so I just read all the old school papers because quite often, you know, it, a lot of it doesn't go online, a lot. The products are very different and very often you'll see one line in a story that jumps out and you think, wow, no one's written this yet. Yeah. Bonus. And, it ha and, and if that story hasn't gone online, maybe no one's written it because they haven't seen it because yeah. so much doesn't go online. So there's, the, there's that first-person-y theme type thing where you're not doing any other research other than just maybe referencing a couple of current events. Then there's the news-hooked kind of opinion column, less of the personal revelation, more, more of the analysis comment, you know, what daily life's um, known for. And, again, what we're looking for there is, you know... A <laughs> Fresh is another word that's just massively overused, but we're looking for unique perspectives. We're looking for perspectives that will make other people think, oh, I haven't heard that line before. I haven't heard it said that way. Um, so quite often public debate tends to be pretty black and white and what's really terrific is reading a piece that comes in at the side. Like Jenna's piece today was fantastic on um, the Geoffrey Rush case mm -hmm. because she basically said, who knows what the court will find here but she sort of came in at, into the, the top, into this whole very newsy subject by 
just laterally looking at the issue of um, workplace um, allegations of harassment, etc. If you'd, I'd really recommend that piece. It was a very good piece. But so that that newsy thing, everybody wants it. Everyone wants that that because you've got women, you've got Rendezvous, you've got Nine Honey, Ten, whatever it is. There's actually now more platforms for this kind of writing than there ever have been. And um, so that looking around at current affairs, you know, you'll find a story anywhere. You find a lot of journalists spend a heck of a lot of time on Twitter and Facebook looking for stories, mm-hmm. and they're finding them there. Um, and so I'm looking for that. Um, also, journalism, like old school journalism, is back in town. So, and a story on something to do with, you know, might be a women's shelter closing. We were talking about that issue outside. A story about what's the impact of in that little community of that thing happening, that shelter shutting, you know, a bit of journalism, a few interviews. It doesn't have to be Pulitzer Prize, but it's information. There's a premium on information. So Can I all ask, those things. For all of these things, how much do you want of them when they are pitched to you? Like how long would a pitch it um, um, Yes, yeah, so that's be. a very good question. Um, as I say, I'm new in this job, but I know from when I freelanced, you've got to keep them very tight you almost write your pitch like you'd be writing a news story with the pointiest bit at the top, you know, um, one sentence saying... Well, you know, you're looking for uh, the shit the shit a factor. Oh, shit a Wow, I didn't know that. You know, like, that. you're looking for something which is going to block out for that nanosecond all the things blurring past our eyes and, and, and get that editor to actually put their eyes on that and let it go in. So you, you do you do want your top line to be your strongest um, and then a, certainly a strong second sentence to back up why people need to read this now. Like, what you absolutely need is, I have an idea and this is why it has to be read right now. Mm-hmm. This is why it has to be got out right now. Um, and you can, if it's a, if, even if it's a narrative or it's a lyrical thing or it's, I like a bit of humour, it's got to be the... There has to be that um, attention grabbing, almost like a headline, and quite succinctly put. Yeah. Um, so I think if, if you've got that, then an editor will read another eight, eight sentences. You know, here's how much time people spend on your average column online. This is so depressing. Mm-hmm. 46 seconds. <laughs> right, Not so, even a whole minute. Nope. It's around that. I've noticed it. 46, 48, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's even more depressing than that. Mm. We can now read completion rates. So we know with every article, including our own, how many people read to the end. Mm. And all this other statistics, you really, it's, it's venturing into the territory of too much information. We could talk forever <laughs> on what that is doing to the way yeah. that we commission as yes, well. Yeah, but, but you're right. Yeah. We should... Keep it really tight yeah. and... Maybe I'll hand over someone else. Yeah, so I'd like to know, Lucy, if that's similar, the pitching for you and also what you're looking for particularly at the moment. Yeah, um, it's quite interesting because as we were just talking about with the sort of uh, longer, much longer lead times, um, please don't tell me why your piece needs to be written and read right now because no one's going to read it for another two months. <laughs> um, so it's not particularly useful. Um, and also, as and it's interesting for us, like we still operate on sort of news hooks, but it's a very different style of news. Um, uh, I've had a thousand pitches about the anniversary of yesterday, and I'm like, everyone's going to be talking about the anniversary of yesterday. I don't care. Um, don't pitch me your Mardi Gras piece. <laughs> pitch that to somewhere else. Pitch that to um, other publications that are talking about queer stuff for the two times of the year that they do that. <laughs> um, but if you wanted to pitch a piece about Intersex Awareness Day, I'm here. I'm all ears for that, which was last week, you know. Um, and being aware of those sorts of other kinds of news hooks, that as well we can approach with our sort of two to three month lead time. You know that it's Transgender Day of Remembrance coming up, so you pitch that to me in middle of October and I'm ready for that. Um, So not necessarily about why it should be written right now um, or not even necessarily why you should be the one to write it. That's another common thing for opinion pieces, like why you, what sort of expertise do you have? Um, For me, for Archer, it's more about... um, showing that you are aware of the publication. So please just, like, show me that you've read the publication. Show me that you're aware that we have written about bisexuality before. Um, And, of course, 
everyone's piece, everyone's perspective on bisexuality is different, but how are you going to make yours sound different? Um, apart from it just being your own personal story, what else are you going to say that's a little bit different to the piece we published two weeks ago? Um, and apart from that, the other thing I would say is we do have pitching guidelines on our website. So if you follow those to a T, I think highly of you because I know that you've read the website. You don't need to. Um, if you send me sort of a, a one-liner that's really good, I'm going to come back and be like, I'm into it. But if you've read the pitching guidelines, I know that you're at least a little bit familiar with the site. And I know that you're not just pitching this everywhere. I know that you've got a reason that you're coming to me. Um, so that's probably what I'd say. Candice? Oh, you go there. Yeah. Um, I absolutely agree with Lucy about, um, you know, the point with knowing who you're pitching to. That is, you know, that's half the battle won, I think. And pitch to your favourite publications because chances are you've read them a lot. So you know them. You know what's been written already. It's part of your natural algorithm. It takes that work, hard work out, like, you know, of having to do the last-minute Google of being like, oh, have they written about that? It's like, no, you know you've read them, and, you know, here's a gap, and here's where I want to enter. Um, uh, as to um, what stories I'm looking for for the Emerging Writers series, um, I'm looking... It's, it's fairly narrow, so I'm looking for, um, you know, Asian-Australian writers or, um, yeah, um, who, who uh, have things to say about gender, identity uh, and, you know... and or and or feminism or, you know, basically their life experience through the lens of an Asian-Australian person. Um, that said, uh, I also work very closely with the SBS Life team. So I think it's good to know that, like, these things are also related. Sometimes if a pitch doesn't quite land with SBS Life, it might be a suitable one for, um, you know, my project, for example. So, you know, um, know that these things are related. And then um, the other thing I wanted to say is um, with length, um, four or five sentences, absolutely. Um, brevity is good because it also tells me you understand the pitch you know what the angle is. Sometimes something short means you've got a set, some kind of... You've got a... Cl like, a, you're more clear on what you want to say. Um, so, yeah, don't worry about, you know, impressing with language. Um, you will get... <laughs> you know, like, the compelling stuff is the idea. Um, and uh, I, being a bit of a nerd, I, I kind of thought about what I would look for in a pitch um, and I was thinking, well, okay, if I were to have a checklist for myself, what would it be? And I kind of like made up a bit of an acronym, which I hope is helpful to you guys in some way. So um, like my acronym is BET, like B-E-T. So um, and uh, it, it, I feel like maybe like it's, you're, you know, you're kind of it's a, it's a bit of a bet. Like, you're putting your time out there. You want some kind of reward. So, B, like, be brief. And then, um, uh, E, I want there to be some kind of emotional kernel. Like, I, I kind of want re emotional resonance, whether it's in an angle or um, an example that you can give me that... Because, basically, we're reacting to, to things. Like, we're, you know, it's not just all academic and cerebral. You want to feel like you want to read the story. Um, and usually that emotional kernel is a universal thing. So a story might be about having two hometowns as an immigrant, um, and that makes you feel really lonely because you feel at home at neither places. And the emotional kernel there is, you know, feeling like you don't belong, which is something that can be applied to, like, people of any nationality, like, you know, at most situations. Um, and then T would be, what is your thesis? Hey, tell me what your angle is. Like, what is the hook to your, um, to your pitch? Um, and that usually is um, less gimmicky than it sounds. Basically, it's just, well, what's the way in? Like, um, tell me that through a personal story, for example, because then I can picture what it looks like as a full, full piece. Um, yeah, and that's usually the personal thing. So I hope that helps in some case. Yeah, it really useful. I love a good acronym. 
I might just quickly spend one minute telling you about um, what I look for in a book pitch, just in case anyone is interested in pitching for a non-fiction book. Um, narrative non-fiction is really big at the moment, manifestos and books that combine your personal experience with a cultural examination of some sort as well, so a really interesting topic, often told through a personal lens. Is, is Everyone's looking for that at the moment, um, and particularly women's stories as well. Um, so you're in a good place. So um, for a non-fiction pitch, what you normally need is a sample of writing and that's usually about a chapter but it has to be illustrative of how you would want the rest of the book to read. If you have written a bunch of articles that you've had published that are very similar, sometimes that can be enough. Um, then you also need a chapter outline. So usually think um, about 8 to 12 um, chapters and for each of those you're just outlining with one paragraph what you're going to talk about in that and it's a really good way to organise your thoughts as well for what your book will be um, and, and how it will run and what the journey will be. And then the most important thing is the synopsis. Um, and so usually about one to two pages is enough for that. And you can think of that as an outline or you can think of it as an introduction to the book. Either of those can work. But it's really just explaining what the book is, who it's for, what you want to say with the book. Um, and all of those things together, along with a really killer title, hopefully, um, will, will really um, give it a, an editor an idea a good idea of what you want to say. And then the other thing is your biography and any of the information that you can add to that. Any personal links to the story, but also any times you've been published by any of these wonderful people as well. So the more times you've been published around the place and can show that you've found different audiences, the better. Act, fake it till you make it a bit, you know? Everyone else does. That's another bit of advice. Yeah. I have. I think just that always remembering as well that it is like it's a creative pursuit but it's also a business is always a reminder, right? And, and it's okay in business to follow people up and to act professionally and as long as you're professional about it, you get away with a lot, right? Thank you so much for your amazing insights. Um, it has been a varied and in-depth conversation in many ways. Um, could you please give a huge round of applause to our three members of the panel here? If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgee, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, and many, many, many more sessions of the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney yet to come. So jump on onto our website and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals. They're a really important part of our writing, reading and living community.